Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Learning Out Loud. Today we are joined by Mark Christensen. Mark is a UVA alumni that came back to speak in my leadership class with Professor Lovelace, who was our first guest on the show. I loved Mark's talk so much and came away with so many insights, so I knew that I had to go up and introduce myself at the end and eventually ask him to be a guest so that you all could hear what he has to say as well. I will now share a little bit about him from a bio that Professor Lovelace provided my class. Mark Christensen is an 04 McIntyre School of Commerce alumni. He transferred to the University of Virginia from Northern Virginia Community College, where he was taking classes at night while working during the day as a woodworker. He was recruited from the McIntyre School by Clark Construction Group in 2004 and started his professional career in Bethesda, Maryland. After working on notable projects such as the U.S. DOT headquarters and the Nationals baseball stadium, Mark was relocated to Houston, Texas. In 2014, he started Christensen Building Group, a full-service construction company working in both the industrial and commercial construction markets. Christensen Building Group made the Inc. 500 in 2018 and was recognized as the 16th fastest growing construction company in America with six regional offices, 150 employees, and more than $100 million in annual revenue. Mark says there is no one formula for success. Make your own. We hope you enjoy. Yeah, thank you guys for being flexible and uh, happy to participate. Appreciate you okay. inviting me to be on the show here. So I know I shared um, a link with Jennifer about like what this is all about. Do you need us to explain anything else or? Um, I mean, it had a brief description and a few questions and uh, I, I read it all and kind of, I, I think I have a pretty good feel for the overview. Um, I don't know uh, if it's going to be more of a discussion or if we're going to go right down the questions or what what's your no I mean opinion? we're not going to ask you like word for word those questions I kind of just liked um how Professor Lovelace he gave us the idea to actually give our guests a list of questions that we yeah. were interested in we're not actually going to be like asking you word for word those questions but I thought that it was useful for our guests to know like what we are interested in hearing about sure. yeah no I mean it definitely helps frame things in and helps me understand um kind of what direction you want to take the discussion so yeah honestly I really really liked the talk that you gave our class and not that you need to give that exact talk but anything from that would be really awesome and then we could jump in and ask questions about that so cool yeah so I guess um just to start you could start almost how you started it with our class just a little bit but how you got to UVA I know it was kind of a unique path and that's something that we're really interested in like hearing that non-traditional path so okay um <clears throat> sure so uh yeah my path to Virginia was it was a little bit different um I coming out of high school did not did not really have a college plan per se um, I had worked uh, in a family business and had learned the trades, as we call it in construction. Um, I was kind of a carpenter by training, uh, worked in a wood shop, and um, obviously had friends that went off to college and had heard about it, but it wasn't something that I was really, uh, um, I think, prepared to, to go right into, or I guess I just didn't have the awareness of what that was going to be. And I, I liked working from an early age. I liked working with my hands and wood shop. I liked making money. 
And so I didn't necessarily see the need cut right out of the gates. I was young. I was making good money uh, performing a trade. Um, but I did know that education and furthering my education was something that was important for me. So um, I started just on my own going to Northern Virginia Community College. I was working in a wood shop in, in, in Alexandria, Virginia. And when I got off work, I took night classes. I'd go over to Northern Virginia Community College and um, just take classes and paid cash for uh, the early, you know, year and a half or two years of my education. And it wasn't until I saw some friends and family going to four-year schools that I thought, eh, maybe that's something I want to look into. And so um, I met with my guidance counselors and uh, they they said, yeah, you know, you, you've got decent grades and, and um, uh, Virginia has kind of reciprocity with some of the community college systems. And so if, you know, they'll recognize some of your credits. And um, at the time, my, my younger brother was going to William and Mary. And so I looked into William and Mary a little bit, but I was actually uh, volunteering with the Virginia Winter Special Olympics down at Wintergreen. And I got pulled over by the police for speeding in uh, Nelson County. And I dressed up in my finest to go fight the ticket and which I lost, I ended up paying, it's a whole nother story, paying, paying my dues. But on the way back, um, I saw these signs for the University of Virginia. And I thought, you know what, I'm looking at schools, why not? So I pulled over, I parked in the visitor parking there by the bookstore, I got out and walked up by Newcomb Hall and kind of up across where Monroe Hall is. And um, immediately I saw these very uh, sharp looking students and peers and just this beautiful grounds. Uh, and I was blown away by the architecture, obviously being in construction. I kind of went and walked the lawn and it just hit me that this was a place I wanted to be a part of. And so I went back to uh, my counselor and I applied and um, somebody, uh, took grace on my application and decided to let me in. Um, and so that was kind of my path to, to Virginia. I, I, it was the only school I applied for and, and I got in and, and um, at that point in my life, I was married. I had worked a career. I, you know, I was probably 22 years old. I wasn't, you know, super old, but I was a few years older, a few years more mature, I think, than some of my peers. And that actually brought a lot of focus to, my education because when class was done I, I had a wife I needed to take care of I had a job I worked I worked in a wood shop in Charlottesville throughout college and um, and then getting into McIntyre was kind of its own experience where I was sitting in uh, econ 101 uh, and I think it was Professor Elzinger was asking who here is in the room because this is a prereq for the comm school and like every hand slid up and I had, I didn't know what the comm school even was. And so I was kind of, you know, raising my hand, looking around. Um, and so I just started looking into what the comm school was and, and uh, put, put in an application and got into, into the comm school. And so it, it was just a series of events that kind of shaped my path to Virginia. Um, 
but it, it was an experience that truly changed my life because it, it brought a whole different perspective of uh, business and being a professional, how to interact with people, education, obviously, and rounded out what I, you know, think were some pretty raw working, you know, a work ethic and a desire to succeed and a competitive spirit and other things that I just kind of had in me. And I was kind of being molded by professors and peers and people through the Virginia experience. Um, and so that's, that's how I got to Virginia. And uh, it was a great experience and, uh, you know, launched my professional career from there. So I know that, I think you said when you came to our class that it was at a fair that you saw a construction group. Was that correct? Yeah. So um, I was just going to ask, were you planning before that fair to still go into construction or was it because of that that you decided to? No. So I, I had kind of put construction wasn't even a, a, a profession that I was looking into. I mean, I, I built cabinets for a living. I was a woodworker. I didn't really know there was a larger scale commercial construction world out there. Um, I was a finance uh, major at the comm school and was focused on like a lot of students banking. I wanted to be an investment banker. I was focused on that. I um, um, studied international business and was really hoping to go work with a bank. I interviewed with several of the different banks and, and consulting firms. And like a lot of folks that go through the comm school were hoping to go down that path. And so it wasn't until I was just walking through the career fair that uh, a big construction company, Clark Construction Group, who's still, I think, pretty active with Virginia, um, they had a booth set up and it showed stadiums and big buildings. And I started talking to the recruiter there and they liked my mix of business and practical construction experience. And so I uh, did the first round of on-grounds interviews with them. And then they had me travel up to DC where their headquarters was. And I was blown away by this career option that I had never considered, but um, it, it was a really awesome big business, a professional in business. It, it, it incorporated a lot of uh, the fun things I enjoyed about construction. And it really opened my eyes to something that no one had really spoken to me about, which was commercial construction is a big part of our economy. It's a big business and, and there's a lot of demand for it. So it's good. It was a good career path. So. I think a lot of times, like you mentioned people in McIntyre, but also just in general, college students tend to have kind of like a tunnel vision and like once they pick a certain career path they just think that that's like the direction yeah. that they need to go in so I know for you you just happened to stumble across this construction company at the career fair but how do you think are some other ways that we could see these other opportunities when they kind of seem more like under the radar I mean I I mentioned it a little bit when I was um, on grounds which is you know, what, find what you're passionate about. And oftentimes there's a big business standing behind it. Uh, there's a lot of industry out there that has big, sophisticated businesses with 
career, great career paths that are, that are looking for sharp people that understand finance and management and marketing and business development and accounting and architect, all the things that those students are studying would be to, to look into the businesses in the industries that, that, that you would like to be a part of. Um, uh, and, and then also use your, your networks that you have, you know, talk to your friends, parents, talk to your relatives. Um, when you're at the career fair, talk to other businesses that you wouldn't, uh, initially consider, right? Uh, if someone that was only thinking about best investment banking, if I didn't have an interest in construction, I would have never stopped at Clark construction, right? I would have walked right past it and thought, you know, who, who wants to talk to a construction company? That's not very sexy. That's not cool, right? But if you'll open your mind to some of these other businesses and career options, oftentimes they can be as competitive or more competitive from a career growth, from a compensation perspective, from a quality of life perspective. Um, you know, there's a lot of businesses that offer things that you have to weigh into that equation of what do I want to do for the rest of my life? Um, I, I think the other important thing to remember is you're never locked into any one thing forever, right? So it's okay to explore. I mean, at this point in time in your life and in your, um, in your professional career pursuit, it's okay to explore things a little bit. You can't be too afraid that you're going to make the wrong decision and then you're forever doomed doing something you don't like to do, right? Um, so those are those are a few things that I I would um, you know I, I would recommend, and I, that's why I'm so excited to go speak to a classroom of students that maybe had never considered commercial construction or real estate. Um, I have a lot of very successful friends and associates that are in this industry um, that are business owners and entrepreneurs, and they've created also careers for smart young folks coming out of college to come take leadership roles, you know, so. Do you think that like the experience you had before going to college, like spending some time working, do you think that played into, I guess, maybe the meaning, the meaningfulness of your education, and then also being able to see those opportunities? I think we've, we've had the conversations of like how would it affect people if college was wasn't right after high school? Like people got out there, experienced things a little more before getting like pigeonholed down these career paths. Yeah. What he wants to, <clears throat> you know, I think one thousand percent it helped me, and I think it gives it gives uh, perspective. It allows you to to mature a little bit, um, and all of us in our college environment. Um, come from a different, uh, I guess, world. Some folks have been very sheltered and protected and been in a bubble and they go from right from the high school home bubble into the college bubble, right? And they, they haven't seen the world, experienced it. And, it. and it honestly gave me an edge in my classes, right? I had more confidence. I had um, worked and, and had a profession and and had to earn money and manage money and how to spend money, which also helps. And then I had other responsibilities in life where I was paying for my own insurance and living and then experienced some of those things that uh, I think helps give you perspective um, and give you an appreciation for uh, uh, for that. I mean, I was 
one of, I'm not going to say the first person, but one of the first people in my family to really go to college and get a degree in my immediate family. Um, and so I hadn't been exposed to folks who had been through that experience and therefore I didn't have a lot of guidance uh, throughout that process. So I appreciated things, I think maybe a little more than others that may just go right from a, a protected world into another one. And then they get tossed into their professional lives. Um, um, so yeah, I, I, I recommend it. I mean, I, you know, certainly promote college and education, but you know, do they have to be end to end? Can there be a little period there? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that, um, you know, hopefully the academic world sees that also as a strength, because if they're, if we're looking for more diversity and more, um, you know, uh, thoughts that come from different experiences, having someone who's been out in the world a little bit that then brings that into the classroom, I think can help their peers as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And something else that we've talked about in various entrepreneurship classes is that a lot of successful business people have like an internal locus of control that they're the one who's driving their success or their failure. And they're kind of the pilot in their own plane. So that kind of sounds like a lot what you were talking about, about, you know, taking ownership about what you were doing and how you were doing it. So how did that affect what we were doing after college, once you started working for Clark Construction and the moves that you made after that? So that's a great question. I, and it's, it's funny that you said that, that it phrased it that way, because I remember the day I decided to go out on my own, having this thought, this feeling that, you know, I am now um, the either the, the limiting factor of my own destiny, right? So it's, it's either the scariest moment in your life or the most empowering moment in your life or both mm -hmm. at the same time, because you know, you're stepping out of security, you're stepping out of something that's known. But if you have that confidence and comfort that you know your industry, you know your business, you um, are confident about the path that you're about to go down, it can become very empowering. And then once you've done it a little bit, like a lot of entrepreneurs, you kind of challenge the status quo a lot. You challenge the way we do things. And, and even in, in, in our day-to-day -day business, I'm bringing young folks into my office and sitting down and saying, so I understand that the architect says to do it this way and the engineer says to do it this way, but does that make sense? Does that make sense to you? Or do you understand why they're asking us to do that? And if not, let's get them on the phone and let's ask some questions. Maybe we can do it this way and we save some money or do it faster, or do it safer, higher, higher, higher uh, quality or something. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, going into a new career and a new profession, you're, you are, have a tendency to want to go down that kind of very well beaten path of this is what I'm supposed to do. This is how I'm supposed to do it. Um, but as you evolve in your career, one of the things your, your employers are looking for is for you to bring new thoughts and new ideas and challenge things in the right way, right? You don't just go boot your boss's door and then tell him he's all screwed up and this is the way it's supposed to be because you don't necessarily have all the perspective, right? But if you ask questions the right way and you go drive and dive into the details and research and and bring some thought and present it 
it can get it can have you start to be looked at in a different way in a different light in that business and it can help build your own confidence right even even when you put an idea out that gets uh maybe maybe not received as well you learn from your failures so um but for sure um having confidence in yourself and comfort and knowledge in what you're doing um it it, it, it is an empowering kind of a feeling as a as a business owner and it's key to to having success even when you you can be scared and confident at the same time they're, they're not you know and you, you talk to athletes that are going into, I mean, where the NBA finals are happening right now or any major sporting event and the, some of the best athletes on the planet, they get nervous, you know, but they're still confident that they're going to go in there and win. So. Yeah. I saw something the other day that said like scary and dangerous aren't the same things and like people associate them as the same and if something's dangerous, then maybe you shouldn't be taking a risk, but just because it's scary, like that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be taking the risk. So I thought that kind of related. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I like to use the term calculated risk. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's this risk reward. Do you understand the risks? Is it an inform? Is it an informed decision that you're making right now? Blind risk is not, that's not good. Right. But if you understand the risks, you can evaluate the risks. I mean, taking some level of risk in whatever you're doing is important to growth, right? And experience and learning and failure is too. You just don't want to fail and, and die or fail and have, and fail and have total financial, you know, destruction. Um, but a little stumble, you're going to lose a little money. You get hurt a little bit. I mean, it's, it's part of the game. No, there's, there's no pro athlete that hasn't fallen or stumbled or been hurt or done something. Um, and the same with business people. I mean, don't think that there haven't been losses along the way. There certainly are, you know, and then you go, you know what, I'm not going to do that again. You know, you got to learn from it. So. Yeah. And this, this also kind of goes along with something else that we've been talking about, which I think is this uh, Steve Jobs idea, which is that everything around you is built by people and maybe they're smarter and better able than you at some things and maybe they're not at other things. And so that doesn't mean that you can just, like you're saying, you know, knock on your boss's door and say, this is the way that things are because they're there for a reason, but there's also no, you know, divine mandate that this is the exact way That's that right. the construction industry is, or you have to go to college at this point in this school and whatever else. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, uh, I, I may have shared the quote, that is on our wall here and something that was shared to me very early on by one of my mentors, it's a people business, you know, we're in construction and that, that just says it's a people business. And it, it's because everything we do revolves around interacting with people, um, influencing people, managing relationships with people. Um, and that's in every, every business and people who are good at what they do, managing um, uh, others, managing customers they're good with people and one of the one of the questions you 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 put out there was this balance between technical skills and organizational kind of people skills and i would say the further you move up the more those people skills become uh critical and the less the technical skills are as important you know in the beginning you've got to understand your industry you've got to know your business you've got to know what you're looking at 
But as you increase your role, as you become management, as you grow in your leadership, now you're guiding other people and you're relying on those people for their technical skills, right? Um, and there's some people that just don't like managing other people. They don't like dealing with people. They don't like conflict. They don't, which is a part of managing people, by the way. You have to be able to deal with conflict. Conflict is going to happen. People are going to be upset. They're going to be frustrated. Um, you're going to have to just, you have to be able to make tough decisions. Sometimes you have to create the conflict to resolve something. And you, and that's really hard because there's a lot of folks that don't want to engage in conflict. It doesn't have to be adversarial. It doesn't have to be mean, but you have to be able to engage in an uncomfortable situation and come to a resolution and move on. And then you've got to offload whatever, you know, bad feelings you had or, or, or pain that you had and go on to the next issue. Because if you carry that around every single day, it, it, it's just miserable. Um, and, and it's a hard thing to do because there's a lot of people that don't like conflict. Yeah. So, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about kind of the decision making process, whether it's resolving conflict or deciding about a calculated risk that you're looking to take or deciding to go to school at this time? Or, um, you, you know, you've talked a lot about kind of different junctures that decisions that you've made. So do you have a, a process or a way of thinking about what makes the most sense at a particular time? You know, my, my approach is, has, uh, has been always very, a very transparent with the folks that I'm interfacing with, right? This is, this is what we're going to talk about. And, you know, here's where I am. I'd I want to hear your position or what your thoughts are. And, you know, my mind isn't made up now. I might have a strong opinion, but You've got to also be willing to, to be influenced a little bit. You've got to be willing to, to say I'm wrong or to say, you know what, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it's important to collect the facts, right, as you see them and as you understand them. Um, uh, there's, a lot of, there's, there's a lot of folks who, who will let other people's facts and other people's opinions form the basis of their decisions. And I like to get the data myself. I'm just, I like to see it and understand it. And so I think whether you're deciding when to go to school or what career to engage in, it's okay to collect a lot of thoughts, but then you have to come up with what facts, what risks, what uh, benefits uh, you believe in and that you think are true um, because you have to live with it at the end of the day. Right. And I can tell you when it goes wrong, a lot of those folks aren't around anymore. <laughs> you're the one you're the one dealing with the problem. Right. And, or paying for the problem, um, you know, and especially as a business owner, um, if I have a leader who's making a really, really bad decision and it's impacting the organization. Um, I mean, that person sometimes can just go. They're gone. They got they've got another job, you know, or you let them go and they're gone. You still have to fix the problem. Right. And now your organization is paying the consequence. You're paying for it. The people around them are paying for it. And so it's important to, you know, hate to say it, but, uh, you know, trust but verify is, is something that, you know, I have a faith in humanity, but I also like to validate things for myself. Um, and you can do that only to a certain extent. Right. Because you can only be so many places 
at, at one point in time, you can only manage so much data. And so that's where creating a culture that follows a lot of these principles in your business, or even if you don't own the business in your department or in whatever you're managing, you create a good culture for um, how to interact with each other, how to make decisions, um, how to manage processes. If you can develop a culture that people want to follow and that they believe in and that they buy in on, then you don't have to be everywhere because now all of a sudden I've got three more people that think similar, uh, similarly to, to myself and we're, we're, I have trust and confidence that we're all kind of moving in the, in the same direction. Um, because if you, you know, as a business owner, sometimes it's difficult because to let go, you want to touch everything um, because it's your baby, right? You built it from nothing and you don't want anything to go wrong or, um, you, you know, it has direct impacts to you and your, and your financial success, but you can only do that and get so big, you know, we're up to 150 employees right now. And um, I'm not meeting with every single one of them every day. I can tell you, I can tell you that. So, so yeah. how did you create the culture that you wanted in the company that you started? You know, uh, that's, that's a great question. And it's something that I always continue. I always have to revisit as, as you scale your business, because you, you go back to what, what has helped us be successful. And I, for me, a lot of it was working shoulder to shoulder with a lot of the early uh, members of the company, right? Being there, helping to solve problems, being kind of more of a, uh, a partner with everybody than just commander in chief yelling out directives. Um, people respect that, right? People uh, want to work for someone who's committed to their own cause, um, not just the wizard in the, you know, behind the curtain. Um, and so I think, you know, excitement and energy and passion is contagious for a lot of people. And so even when you know that things are tough or this is going to be hard uh, or may not be enjoyable, if you're bringing positivity and bringing energy to the table um, and leading with a positive attitude, that's contagious and it gets people motivated and they'll go through tough times with you. Um, and, but that can also be uh, um, diminished when you start to get people in your organization that aren't committed to what you do, or they're a little more focused on their own personal success or their own personal benefits, which is unfortunately something that we see more and more in the workforce, right? I think the world of social media has created a a billion, you know, single accounts that's focused on them getting a click. Um, that's not a team sport, right? It's about you getting a click for your Instagram or you getting a click for whatever. Um, and so we see that with a lot of younger folks and even experienced folks is they're focused on them and they see their own personal brand as, as the most valuable thing. And you have to think about yourself, but they don't realize that they're, when I get a resume that says you've been to six companies in five years, man, what kind of, what does that say about commitment, right? Um, uh, and so having a longer term outlook as well to how you're personally developing yourself uh, is something that we're always trying to 
encourage people to do. And um, that doesn't mean stay in one place forever, but you know, it takes a while before you really de get developed and, and gain skill sets. And then you can make a decision. Do I, is it time to make a shift or do I continue or do I go do my own thing? You, you talked a little bit about like the culture within the company, but you just touched on resumes and hiring people. Like how do you, how do you work to attract people like that, that aren't currently in your company? Like how do you bring those people to you? Mm, I, you know, trying to create a, doing this, right. Trying to create awareness about construction. I mean, I want folks to be excited about construction. There's tremendous opportunities there. Um, um, and, and talking to younger folks about what we do, making it exciting. Um, I think that, you know, and I've got two kids and I get to see them outside um, experiencing hands-on tangible adventures and see how much they enjoy that versus the virtual adventure they get by being plugged into a, an, an iPhone. Um, and so promoting the industry, I guess, is, is one thing. The other one is showing them that it can be financially rewarding. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we want to have success and have money to pay for cool things and nice things and have security. And so also giving folks some perspective that, you know what, um, this can, this can go really well for you. I mean, that was part of why I started the circle was, you know, I'm not on there posing in front of, uh, an exotic car and flashing, you know, things, but if some of that stuff's in the background, you know, I want people to know that, Hey, you can, you can have success, right? Um, and you can have a lot of fun. Um, I mean, what got me in excited about it was meeting other small business owners, whether it was a mechanical company or a drywall company or a concrete company or a glass company. The, there's a, you know, there's 40 plus trades in every building. And there's a business owner that owns every single one of those businesses. And then there's leaders in all of those businesses and they make good money. And um, when I noticed that years into my career, I knew a lot about the industry. I had a lot of experience. I had guys leaning on me for knowledge, but I didn't have, you know, cool side-by-sides or a hunting lease or a private aviation or whatever the stuff was that was out there. I thought, you know, what do I need to do to get there? Maybe it's time for me to, to try to go manage my own destiny, um, and that kind of inspired me to, to, to take a, a step out of the, you know, the corporate nest, if you will. So. so could you talk a little bit more about the construction industry and what the opportunities are? I know you're saying that like, there are a lot of opportunities for money, but what does it look like for you guys? What are you doing? Stuff like that. So, um, I mean, the reality is very few people raise their kids and say, go into construction, right? I mean, I would be surprised if any one of you had a parent saying go into construction. Um, and so we're, we, we've, we don't have the uh, industry that's attracting talent like a lot of other industries, especially in a, in a more technology-driven era. We've got more people retiring right now and getting out of the industry than are coming into the industry. And so it's a simple supply and demand equation because we're not building less right we're building more we got bigger buildings more complicated infrastructure and now we do have a lot of technology and big projects are not 
you know, five, 10 million big projects are two, three, four, 500 million, you know, big buildings. You know, I was in New York on Tuesday. Uh, a few of those buildings are four or $5 billion buildings, single buildings. Right. And so when you look at the amount of fees and companies and, um, um, resources that's required to do a $2 billion project, it's big. And when you have a shortage of people going into that industry and a shortage of people that can manage that work or that even understand it and having a handful of people that know what they're doing, making the difference in a three or $4 billion project, those people become very, very valuable. You know, a construction superintendent that knows a to Z, how to manage a big, complicated job. When you get into especially these larger projects, that dude or gal can just about write their number on a piece of paper and hand it to a company. Um, they're that valuable. And so the salaries and bonuses that we see now, um, you know, they're 20, 30, 40% greater just over the last few years than what they were. Um, and then the opportunities to be a business owner, manage a, you know, manage a company or come in and be a leader. There's a lot of succession taking place, right? So you've got someone that ran a company for years and years and years, and they might be tired of doing it, but they have a great company. They don't have a successor. I see it all the time. And they're looking for succession, a succession plan. Not everybody has a son or a daughter that wants to run their construction company. And so there's, there's opportunities where leaders come in and become uh, managers in an organization, and they get an opportunity to transition into ownership of an established company, uh, which can be crazy profitable. You know, some of these firms even manage the whole success and transition process for you. They might loan you the money to buy the company from them, and then you pay them back with future earnings. Those sorts of deals take place, right? Um, so it's just supply and demand. You, you, you know, there's a, the, 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 we don't have enough skilled labor. We don't have enough leadership. Um, but if you, if you contrast that to the internet, to social media, let's call it, you have people who are literally spending their savings to be liked right? So you're competing for clicks with people that are willing to go broke to get clicks. That's not a very good business to be a part of, right? You're competing with people that they will spend their own money to beat you, right? Versus someone who is going to pay you to provide that service and that is, is wants you to be that. And when you, when you compare even the, some of the most successful internet sensations, you look at people who have millions of followers, their earnings off of that is nothing compared to uh, your average, you know, successful small business owner in, let's say, the construction industry, right? Um, so, yeah. So, so what does your day to day look like in the industry, and what might the day to day look like for somebody who's, you know, just getting started? So, I mean, that to, I'll answer the first one uh, or the second question first. So. You know, this is an industry that requires some commitment in the beginning to understand, right? You've got to come in and understand, and not just construction, but let's say real estate. How does real estate work? How is value added? How are buildings built? What are the contracting types like? 
Um, you know, where is there um, opportunity to make a, a, a good fee and what type of market, et cetera. So you got to understand it like, like anything. Um, uh, but the best advice I have is to spend time on project sites, like being at a project site, whether that's an on-site uh, field manager, on-site project manager at some time. And I, I uh, advise it to be done early on is get on a project site and just learn how buildings are built. And whether you end up being in construction or you end up being a real estate developer or you end up being a real estate investor or you end up just having success and want to invest in real estate in the future, um, understanding tangibly how a building gets built and what goes into it is, is a very valuable thing to know. Um, and so um, that's where we try to encourage our new folks in to come on. Here's your hard hat. This is how you're safe on a job site. You're going to get a little muddy. You're going to get a little wet when it rains, um, but you're going to have fun. And at the end of the day, you know, there's a building standing there. It's going to be there, you know, for who knows, hundreds of years, maybe. And that's a cool thing, too, is it's a very it's tangible because if you're successful in construction, something is coming out of the ground if you're doing your job right. And it doesn't matter if you went to Harvard or Northern Virginia Community College. If you're good at it, a building is getting built. You can immediately see the results. There's other industries you don't necessarily see your impact as tangibly. And so there's, there's that kind of reward. Um, you know, what is my day-to-day -day like now? It's utter chaos every day, <laughs> every day you know. Um, construction's about problem solving, right? So every day on a project, there's something new that you got to go solve, right? The soil conditions were different. It rained too much. The architect or engineer didn't quite design this. You've got a subcontractor that's not performing and you've got to go out to the job site and try to negotiate a deal to get them through their business. Um, some of it's more on the business side of strategy where, what markets are we going to go into? What's happening in, in the, within the regions where we work? So keeping your finger on the pulse of the economy and the markets and where prices are going, you've got to manage, manage that kind of risk. Um, you know, and other aspects is just trying to continue to infuse culture in the business and, and, and get in front of our people, right? That's something I'm focused on now. Um, I shared with, I, I think I did, I shared with y'all that I, I had, was in a bad accident several years ago, um, ended up losing my left, or I electively had my left foot amputated and went through, you know, two, three years where I wasn't as present in my own business, in my own life, really. Um, and so getting reconnected with that and getting face to face and kind of rebuilding culture a little bit is, is a big part of what I'm doing right now. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a fun fun place because the the industry is full of folks that uh, uh, people that love to build they love to be outside they like to have a good time but they're serious about their business um, and it's a uh, it, it's a very kind of low key business environment in a lot of ways you, you, there's no pretentious uh, office that I have to be in I get to wear jeans every day and throw uh, boots on so. Sounds nice. Come on. Come to, come, come to Texas. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
should have flown out today. Yeah, that's right. We're in New York. Um, we could have seen you last week when you were. Where, where were y'all at? Where are you guys? We're, we're on Long Island, so. But. You're on Long Island. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, so I flew, I flew into New York and met with um, an investment bank about a uh, a new product for the construction industry, that's you know you know change the industry we hope and we're a part of doing pre-construction for the first of its kind new plant um it's going to have environmental impacts it's going to have building impacts it's going to uh, affect you know the, the biggest part of the construction world which is concrete it's a concrete related product um and so we get to we got to meet with some banks about maybe investing and and be and participating in expanding this technology um and so that that was pretty cool because you know i studied finance in college uh, i didn't get to live the wall street experience mm -hmm. but you know a couple of days ago i was on wall street on the, the 36 or 7th floor of a building looking over central park and across from the trump tower and it was pretty neat so um um you know there's the, the, the one thing I love about this industry is we touch every other industry. Mm -hmm. So we're building car dealerships, we're building airports, we're building hospitals, we're building in refineries, we're building municipal buildings. I get to go be with the local police department and firemen one day. The next day I'm with the chairman of a international business that owns car dealerships. The next day, you know, I'm doing X, Y, Z. So it's a super diverse environment. I'm interacting with different people all the time. Um, so since you see so many different industries, which other ones really interest you besides construction or which would you advise other young people to go into? Oh, man. What would be a good industry to go into right now? Hmm. You didn't send me that question earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I think um, um, right now, obviously, there's a there's a lot of uh, emphasis on on renewable um, uh, and sustainable things, right? Whether it's and this is you know quasi construction related, but renewable fuels. And you know the the electrification of the of of the U.S. is going to happen, right? And I would say that um, anything that touches a lot of those industries uh, um, is going to be very successful. Um, the U.S. the government is is doubling down right now. Um, they recently passed something called the Chips Act. Um, which is about investing in our own capability to manufacture chips and components and things in the U.S. And they're putting a lot of government money behind it. They're looking for partnerships with private industry. And so I think manufacturing in the U.S. is going to continue to evolve. Um, we see it all over the South right now, large distribution centers, large manufacturing facilities. And there's, a, there's just a ton of new technology um, coming to the U.S. Um, that supports um, sustainable, um, um, I guess, uh, the sustainability of our future as a, as a, you know, as a, as a uh, mankind, um, and in the U.S. But then also 
the electrification of the U.S., you know, all the battery technologies. And, you know, I'm more focused on the infrastructure piece. So there's a ton of businesses that will service bringing more electricity to more places. Um, we are, I couldn't even come close to putting a number on what it's really going to take for us to all drive electric cars and have more uh, uh, electric driven things. Uh, and I think that sustainable fuels and even traditional um, uh, fossil fuels are still going to be important to our future. We can't just say goodbye to everything at once. Um, but the sust sustainable fuel movement, I think, is, a, is a probably a more realistic transition than going 100 uh, percent electrified right now. And that's why you're seeing companies like United Airlines and Porsche investing in hydrogen fuels and, and different sustainable fuels because um, we need them. And, and, and a lot of those fuels can easily, easily transition current infrastructure too. But, you know, you use fossil fuels are used to generate electricity, power cars, um, manufacture, all sorts of things, right? Um, and the chemical side of stuff is big too. There's, you know, one thing people don't realize about Houston in the South is it's not just oil and gas, it's oil and gas and petrochemical. Chemicals are used to make plastics. And there's a ton of new innovation in plastics and 3D printing and manufacturing and polymers and all sorts of stuff there that, and, and a lot of those companies have tremendous, tremendous career opportunities. Um, and, you know, it, it's not always, look, we do a ton of industrial construction and industrial projects aren't always pretty, but you know what they do? They make money. A lot of them make money. It's good margins. There's not a lot of people in that space. It's a barrier to entry to get into it and have the safety records in the system. So sometimes looking in the not so pretty places um, can create opportunities because you're, you're entering into a niche you're entering into a space where there's less competition and that can mean a bigger margin. Um, and by that salary bonuses, you know, business opportunities. So. That's really interesting. I definitely would not be thinking about any of the things you said. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. So Marley was telling us about um, the phrase that you had taxi low fly high. So I was wondering if you could, uh, you know, give a little bit of backstory to that and what that, you know, what that means in terms of you and your business. Okay. Well, I'll be completely honest. Initially, it wasn't a business phrase. Um, it was something that I thought was uh, represented, it represented us as we moved our way into the aviation world um, for travel, for projects and getting people around. I, uh, say I invested I bought a an older plane it's kind of an ugly duckling but a cool plane it's a, a twin commander so we have an 83 you know Gulfstream twin commander that we went through and it's a very low slung so it sits very low to the ground so when you taxi on the ground it's super low right it's kind of like a low rider um but when, but it's a very capable plane. It flies at thirty-five thousand feet. It's pressurized, carries a lot of people. It's super fast, and it's been. We've flown it all over from you know Alaska to Puerto Rico. Um, and so, as we were bringing 
customers and friends and employees on the plane, I thought, you know, this is a lot of people's first time ever being on a plane. So what if we did something kind of cool? And I came up with the slogan, taxi low, fly high. And I put the silhouette of the commander on the back of it. Um, and it was really as I was flying out to Virginia, thinking about what I would say, um, uh, I thought, you know, this really represents the leadership style and the culture that we kind of represent as a company as well, right? It's not about being flashy. It's not about being, like I said, the commander in chief as a leader, but being kind of shoulder to shoulder, working with your peers, working with your uh, employees and your work associates um, in this kind of boots on the ground, taxi low mentality, right? No one's above anybody else. We're all here to get the job done. Um, but then fly high, you've got to perform. If you're going to be a leader, you have to perform. And that's what the commander does. It's subtle, low key. It's not the prettiest, but man, does it perform and it delivers. And I think being a leader um, in any industry requires you to have that kind of mentality. When you think about a lot of very successful leaders, a lot of them are good with people and can connect and make you feel like you're very important and important to them and important to the cause because you are. Um, there's others that make you feel inferior and um, not worthy to be in their presence, right? And I think a lot of those folks are less effective leaders, right? That's just not a leadership style that, at least not in this industry and not in a lot of the other industries that I'm involved in breed success because people wanna be recognized they want to feel like they're a part of something. And, um, you know, having a culture like that in your business and, or your department or wherever you're working creates teamwork and people drive for the success of the unit. Um, and when the unit makes money, the business makes money, there's more money for salaries and bonuses and distributions and everything else. Um, so Taxi Low Fly High has kind of become um, you know, a phrase I've used it since I was down in Virginia, just internally. Um, I'm going to use it more. Did you get the shirts? I did not because I left after he got them, but I'm definitely going to, when I get back, you know, if y'all need, send me uh, an address and I'll get you some shirts, but, um, we see him moving around town, folks jogging around Houston and yeah, I liked it. people want to know where they can get one. And I'm like, they're not for sale. You know, you gotta, you gotta, <laughs> earn it, right. Um, no, I appreciate the question. Yeah. It's, a uh, um, exciting to talk to you guys. Um, this is amazing what you're doing. I think a lot of folks will benefit from it. Um, and I really appreciate you guys inviting me to be a part of it. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. We really enjoyed it. Yeah. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Um, anytime guys, let me know when you're down in Texas next. Yeah, we will. Let, let us know when you're in New York. <laughs> I will, for sure. Thank you. All right. All right. I'll be still on. Okay. Thanks Bye. a lot. Bye.